0: episode of the Northern Logger podcast, I speak with photojournalist George Belarose from Waybridge, Vermont, about his new book, Portrait of a Forest, Men and Machine. Belarose has spent 50 years as a writer, journalist, and photographer, and the last 20 years as a photojournalist documenting the lives of everyday people. In his own words, he says that he is interested in people who are essential to community well-being, but who are often overlooked or understood only superficially. Portrait of a Forest, Men and Machine, embodies those beliefs. The 304-page book published by Vermont Folklife documents how logging has shaped Vermont and examines the economic and environmental challenges facing the forest today. I'm your host, Aaron Kessler, editor of the Northern Logger and Timber Processor magazine. Here's my interview with George Belarose. Thanks, George, for coming on the podcast. It's a real... Honored to have you on. So, I'd like to talk about your new book, Portrait of a Forest, Men and Machine. But before we talk about it, can you tell us briefly about your background? Um,
1: sure, and I'll, I'll try and be brief. I guess I've been a journalist, photojournalist now for over 50 years, and I live in Weybridge, Vermont, and so I'm surrounded by the forest. I'm surrounded by dairy firms. And so wherever I live I try and involve myself or, or capture the the stories of uh, you know the the people around me. So you know, it was natural. I did a, a book a few years back for the Vermont Folklife Center here in Middlebury and their purpose is really to preserve the voices and the and the traditions of Vermont. And so they're very interested in oral histories. So when I uh, start a project I'm always interested in, you know, who can I talk with that represents, you know, the best of, of, of industry. And so um, after I did the dairy farm book looking at the history of the family farm, I said, you know, the forests are really kind of the, the twin pillar or, uh, of Vermont's development. The force, you know, was such a driving force in the development of the state, as was agriculture, and and the third pillar was marble quarrying. So I always like to look back and say, what should we know about these people who shaped our state and who continue to shape, you know, society? So I think, you know, perhaps that's a, a quick of what I try and do is, you know, let people tell their stories through their voices and through a uh, life photography, uh, whether it's in a sawmill or a forester marking trees or someone with a feller buncher or, you know, whatever the, you know, the representative situation, you know, would be.
0: And your most recent book, it's published by the Vermont Folklife Center. It's called Portrait of a Forest, Men and Machine. Um, It's a beautiful 300-page book with photography that I think captures the daily lives of loggers and foresters, um, sawmill owners, log buyers, and directors of forest and wildlife programs, and, and many others in the forest. Community, The photographs and stories of the people uh, in the forest products community told in their own words and with your own essays and commentary. And you've also included historical sidebars that highlight the history uh, and the innovations that have transformed the industry. And it's just so beautiful. So as an entry into the book, I'd like to read an excerpt from Tom Slayton's foreword. Um, Tom Slayton was the editor of the Vermont Life magazine, and he says, Portrait of a Forest, in short, opens up a world, a world many of us who make our living inside an office, sitting at a desk, are liable to be quite unfamiliar with. However, it is a world we need to know better if we are to really understand this forest in which we live. This great ecosystem and the men who manage and work in it deserve our attention and respect. In this book, they receive both.
1: Tom is a treasure. Um, he's a kind of a Vermont treasure, his ability to, to talk about the Vermont experience. Uh, and I knew when I asked Tom, you know, here's what I'm involved in. Would you be interested in writing an introduction? And I, I was quite sure he would say yes, and I knew I would be in good hands, uh, because the forest is, you know, as as he writes, is very important to him. He knows Vermont. Uh, I don't think there was anybody better who could have set the stage for the stories, you know, that were to follow. So, you know, I'm deeply grateful to Tom uh, for his introduction, but also for know, 50 years of writing about Vermont. And uh, for many people, Tom Slayton Sl- is really Vermont, uh, you know, when it comes to thinking about, you know, what the state is and how it's changed and, and the challenges it faces. So he's, he's just the treasure, and I'm so pleased that he, he wrote uh, the introduction.
0: That's great. To dip our toes in and give readers a sense of the book, you've selected some excerpts.
1: Yes. And I can start off with something about the history of the forest and, uh, and how various people have described it. And these are very, very short, often one or two sentences. Here's a, a first quote, and I will tell you the year after I read it, and you'll see their common concerns that have uh, been part of uh, thinking of about the forest for, you know, 250 years. And here is uh, the first quote, and it is, New England is clothed with infinite thick woods. Well, this was written in the 1650s uh, by an English person uh, who visited New England. And at that time, New Vermont was 80 or 90% forest. Okay, here's a a next quote. The forests are not only cut down, but there appears little reason to hope they will ever grow back again. Well, this was in 1804 uh, by Timothy Dwight, who uh, wrote a book Travels in New England and New York, in which he described, you know, what was happening. In the space of very few years, people were quite pessimistic. The forests are not only cut down, but there appears little reason to hope they will ever go back again. And here, we'll jump forward. Man is everywhere a disturbing agent. Where he plants his foot, the harmonies of nature are turned to discord, and this was George Perkins Marsh in 1864 in a book called Man and Nature, and environmentalists will say, you know, he was our first, you know, American environmentalist, and let's jump ahead then. The owners of timberlands in our state are pursuing a ruinous policy in the method used in harvesting their timber. Some measure should be adopted to lessen the wanton destruction of our forests, and this was Vermont Governor Urban Woodbury in 1894. So you can see this kind of this theme of being a steward of the forest forest is is hard work. And here's somebody a little more optimistic. It is claimed that our boasted civilization is built upon iron. But I want to tell you that we are very largely dependent on the product of the forest for our existence.
0: And this was Amos
1: Eaton in 1917. And then here is the final comment. And this was by a, a true Vermonter. And it's a fairly long quote, but it's the proclamation for American Forest Week our force ought to be put to work and kept at work. I do not minimize the obstacles that have to be met nor the difficulty of changing old ideas and practices. It is not enough that the federal, state, and local governments take the lead. There must be a change in our national attitude, our industries, our landowners, our farmers. All our citizens must learn to treat our force is a crop to be used, but also to be renewed. We must learn to tend our woodland as carefully as we tend our farms." And this was President Calvin Coolidge, Vermonter. It was Proclamation for American Forest Week in 1925. And I think, you know, I chose those just because I think they represent, you know, kind of the changing attitudes, the conflicting attitudes, and the importance that we you know we get the forest right
0: thanks for sharing those perspectives Uh, it's very interesting to see how people looked at the land and the forest
1: we've spoken a little bit about tom slayton and how important his introduction is but the book is broken up into seven sections and the first section is the early forest the next section is the old way the chainsaw, the third section is finding a niche, the fourth section is the woodlot, the fifth section is the new way, big machines, the sixth section is the long view, and the concluding section is a look ahead. So those are how I tried to divide the book up, and they're people in each of those categories that, you know, speak to the theme.
0: And and you interviewed all of the subjects over a period of six years?
1: Perhaps even longer, because I would take field notes. I began photography in 2013, and, and you know, I would say, you know, they're doing this and this and this, and, you know, why? And I'd say these notes when we could look at the pictures together and we could talk about the, you know, what was happening, and that would be a springboard for, you know, discussions of other questions, but it probably, it was probably over eight years I by the time I, I went back and would do an epilogue or, and, you know, what has happened since we last spoke, and probably most of the interviews were done in the first four years, and then I would go back as as needed.
0: Wow, it sounds like a... A labor of love did you plan it that way
1: um no
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> the only planning i do is is it's probably going to take longer than i think and it's going to take much longer than i think because people keep coming up with ideas usually or you know it won't be a, a book unless you talk with x or y uh, so I mean that's part of the fun of it is is that as you go at the start you and then people say I think you're on the right track you know concentrate a little here or there and gradually I think you become a little more comfortable that you're missing anything important but I mean that's always the concern you know should I have spoken with this person or that or right uh, So you try and be conscious of sending it out to readers saying, is this clear? Do you want more or less? Is it confusing? Um, And so I I send it both to the the loggers and the sawyers and say, is this what you say? Should I come back? And I send it to lay people who, who may say, geez, this is jargon, I don't understand it, or, you know, that's mm-hmm. what a seller-buncher is. Uh, so I, I think you have to constantly get a sense of of how people are reacting to it, and uh, yeah. and you kind of build on the, the positive comments and the, the negative things. You you try and say, well, let's do this again. Uh, but I, I don't know if it would be helpful if I were to read, say, uh, something from each of the sections, you know, just sections that would give people a, a flavor of the voices.
0: That would be great. I and I really enjoyed your interviews with the the loggers who who worked in the old way.
1: Right, and I, the one I'm going to to read. <clears throat> Short excerpt from, excuse me, is Tweeter Fillion. And when I first started asking people uh, who are people who, you know, are really respected by their peers, uh, and if uh, you you really should talk to this person or that, and the name that kept coming up was Tweeter Fillion. And Tweeter, when I Tweeter, as in, a, like a bird, Tweeter. And yeah. he never quite knew how he got the name, the nickname Tweeter. But he said, my father always just said, hey, Tweeter. <laughs> and his name is actually Larry Lawrence. Uh, but nobody calls him Lawrence. It's always Tweeter. But anyway, Teeter uh, was the old school in that... Uh, he went to school, he was one of 11 children, could only go through the 8th grade, and he had to go to work because he had to help support the family. And he then uh, cut trees for, well, he cut trees until he was 80. So he started when he was 14 and went until he was 80. And uh one of the things about Tweeter was he was a legendary strong logger. I mean he looked like he could, you know, lift up a feller a buncher or a bulldozer and just toss it. But he always said that 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 is not what logging is about. And so here's a, a short section uh, called You Can't Be a Macho Man. We watched the older guys and learned from them. Nowadays, you can't spend a lot of time learning on the job. You can't afford to. I cut for Homer Mitchell when I was starting out, and he'd say, "Tweeter, look at that tree over there. Put it right this way. Well, how in hell did he know that that tree would come this way? But it did. It always did. When I was younger, I couldn't put a tree. I could put a tree anywhere I wanted to. But as you get older... Your eye isn't as good. Experience helps, but you don't have the same energy. When you first work with a logger, you look for his mind. What's he thinking? Does he have a knack for it? You can tell right off whether a new man is any good or not. If he's not good, you send him down the road. You're doing him a favor because he could get hurt. Some people think you have to be a big, macho man to be a logger. My son weighs 280. Ronnie, my younger brother, weighs around 220. I'm about 240. But you don't have to be big. No, you don't. I have worked with a lot of loggers who weren't big, but who had a knack for it. You can't be a macho man in the wood, or you can end up getting killed deader than hell. I remember looking at a job with Ronnie. Two guys wanted us to cut some trees on a very steep side hill, and they'd pull them up onto a shelf with a cable. I looked at the job two or three times and said it was too dangerous. But he was macho and he cut the job himself. It was icy, and the skidder went off the road, rolled over, and killed him deader than hell. I mean, that's the kind of story that Tweeter could go on for hours talking about his, well, 60 years in the woods. Uh, and he said to me, uh, You know, I'm not sure if I should really talk to you because I'm going to write a memoir. And uh, I'm, I'm, I may want to save some of my stories. And I said, Tweeter, you have plenty of stories. Don't worry. Your memoir will be just fine. Uh, of course, he never wrote the memoir, but uh, <clears throat> he always would say, well, I don't know. I When I write my mom memoir... Uh, so, uh, you know, Tweeter is my book, and uh, he died at 81, and he uh, logged, you know, an hour or two or three, perhaps, on good days with his son. Just because His son just said... My father needs to be in the woods.
0: Right. I and mean, it just sounds like it's in his blood. Wow, what a character. Thanks for bringing him to, to life for our listeners. And there are some other really interesting characters in your book, too.
1: Another person I want to talk about or spend time with was the old logger who did a little of everything. You know, he farmed, he had some cows, he made all sugar, Maybe he had a tiny little sawmill in the back, but whatever it would take to cobble together a life was what you know, some of the old-timers would do. I mean, when I said, you know, who represents this kind of kind of throwback? Uh, do whatever it takes. and Everybody said, well, you've got to talk with Mike Quinn. And Mike has about 120 acres, park pasture, part woodlot, uh, on the outskirts of Middlebury. And I will just read a little bit here from Mike, and it's about growing old. The title is, I Work Slower Than Hell. When I started logging in the early 1990s, I was basically starting from scratch. I'm a bit unusual because I didn't learn from an old timer. I grew up farming and didn't know any loggers. I took a leap in game of logging classes. So I had a remarkably few bad habits when I started. Still, at the start, I pounded myself senseless with wedges. I'd have a three-foot oak and would pound steel wedges and cookies and then pound some more. Over time, you learn what needs to be wedged. Finally, I woke up and realized a skitter really does a good job pushing a tree over. And it's a lot less risky when you're sitting in a cage. But there are other times when you put in a wedge and go tap, tap, and the tree's over. That's a lot easier than getting in and out of your machine. And then then I will jump forward. Uh, I have quite a bit of arthritis now, and every day I can get in the woods is a good day. The first week or two logging I can't get out of my own way. The thing about the old human body is how fast you get out of shape. Logging is hard on the body, and at 60, I've done some stupid things. I've milked my cows barefoot on a cement floor floor, for many, many years. When I stopped milking, I felt 10 years younger. The doctor has said he can give me new knees, but I can live with the pain just fine. Thank you. If I were 70 now, I'd be quite happy with the shape I'm in. But it's like I've prematurely aged by 10 years. And the fact is, I'm slower than hell now. But I try to organize my work so I don't waste any time. And so that is my kind growing old. You know, Addison County is fairly small. I tend to run into people, you know, in Middlebury or... Um, I had a call the other day from someone uh, in the book, and, you know, we just chatted, and he filled me. You know, I cut for so-and-so and done this and this and that. And so I, I do keep in touch, um, and, uh, you know, I enjoy you know, teasing them, and mm-hmm. they enjoy me. <laughs> uh, And usually what, teasing me involves, you know, are you any better at identifying trees than, than you used to be? And oh, <laughs> I said, no, I'm still terrible at identifying, identifying trees.
0: Right, I'm I'm still pretty bad at it too, especially in winter. I can identify, you know, spruce and fir. Um, <laughs> so, I wanted to mention the imagery and the photography in the book, and. Oh. Um, So, especially the scenes where loggers are felling trees by hand and also where they're using heavy equipment. Um, And in some of the images, it kind of looks like you're taking the shot, you know, from underneath a machine, um, like underneath a log loader. um, And it looks a bit dangerous. So I was curious, how did you manage to get such compelling and realistic
1: Well, uh, you know, I I would always start with the men to say, uh, I want you to tell me where I should be or shouldn't be. Uh, If I'm creating problems for you in terms of danger or uh, please let me know because so many of the people work by themselves and they're not used to having a second person. And so they don't think about Well, if I follow it here, you know, there's nobody there. So always get a kind of a lay of the land first. Uh, Always get their permission to be here or there. Uh, Start from afar and then move in as you have a better sense of, I can be this close or that close. And as far as seeming to be under things, I think that's probably a reflection is that a lot of the times when I'm photographing to get a sense of the, kind of the grandeur of the, of the forest and the height and the canopy, I'm, um, photographing from a very low angle. So it may look like something is looming over my head, but it really isn't. It's quite a ways away. It's just the, the position and, uh, but, um, so safety always came first, and I, I insisted, please tell me if I'm getting in your way, and I will not be there again.
0: That's really interesting. Well, and part of the title is is men and Machine. You have some excerpts from, like, horse logging, some people talking about their skitters and feller bunchers. Maybe you could uh, read one or two of those. What
1: I tried to do when the Kind of the, the, the title being "Men and Machine" is one. The men often talk about the machines. I mean, like they're friends. I mean, they're uh, they go to work with them every day, and it's it's like they almost have a life. And a lot of the the men name their equipment. Oh really? Yeah, you know, like, you know, like Big Bertha was the name <laughs> of a, of a machine for you know, milling, you know, logs into uh, yeah. into plank and the whale and, you know, just everything had a name uh, or, or sometimes, you know, not names that can be printed. But uh, uh, I wanted to, uh, a lot of the people would say, you know, horse logging, I'm glad I did it, but I'm glad I'm not doing it now. Uh, it's just just too tough on the body. And so I wanted to have a, a horse logger as part of the book, but it wasn't easy to find one in the area who was really committed to, I'm going to make my living horse logging. It was more, you know, I'll do it on a weekend for a friend, or, but my main job is, is something else. But the only person that was local was a person by the name of John Anderson who right out of college uh, decided it's romantic to be a horse logger. So uh, the the narrative will say it's not so romantic uh, when it's hard to get out of bed and you're only 24 years old and your body feels like it's 64. But what I wanted to do was have him talk about his horses because his horses... uh, You know, he lived with them. Uh, And so here is uh, uh, two short commentaries on his horses. Uh, Bud was very, very smart and steady. Bud and Ted worked well together for four or five years. Ted developed foot problems, was sold in an Amish auction with the prospect of a less strenuous life. Bud was old, reliable. For 10 years, and at 25, he's become a lawn ornament and hay burner in his retirement. Draft horses have good days and bad days, but what they like more than anything else is a routine. Their routine was to go to work. Bud doesn't do anything now, and he's just as happy as can be, but like all my horses, he enjoyed working. If I were to ask him to skid logs today... He would, not with the vigor he had when he was eight or nine, but he would work all day if he had to. And then he goes on. A logging horse has to be cleverer than a plow horse. A plow horse just puts one foot in front of the other. Your logging horse has to figure out situations, like skidding around a tight corner or backing up when the hitch hitch gets wedged. Bud was very, very smart and steady. You could, you could hitch anything with him, and he'd teach the new horse. What you don't want to do is to ask a team to pull beyond their capacity. It can break their spirit. And that's how he talked about his horses.
0: Uh, another one that
1: might be interesting is... Buying, person who bought his first skitter, and what it meant, you know, to have a skitter. And I will, I can write. This is fairly short. It's he's another, uh, one of the people who has a farming gene, and a forestry gene, and he had always wanted to buy a farm, but never could afford it. And so he he logged and helped people farm. Um, but his name is TJ Turner and the title is Jesus, I ought to have a skitter. I tell Larry, Larry Hutchins, all the time that if I hadn't sold that if he hadn't sold me his skitter in nineteen seventy eight, I wouldn't have gotten into all this foolishness. I don't know if I would have stayed in logging without a skitter. All my friends had skidders, and I said, Jesus, I ought to have a skitter. I don't need to do this with a bulldozer. We got a lot of firewood out with a bulldozer, but it's not as efficient as a skitter. Hell no. The dozer was a piece of crap, and it was broken as much as we used it. Someone said Larry had a skitter to sell. I went up and we made a deal. Seventy five hundred dollars. It wasn't cheap. It was a two hundred five timberjack. A dozen years old. I kept it three or four years, and then got a more powerful Timberjack, the one I have now. So that Timberjack is probably thirty years old. Now. <laughs> and, wow! And the small loggers can fix anything, and uh, they want to stay away from the computer-controlled Tier Four stuff.
0: Right. They they'll run them as long as they can possibly do that, I guess you can't run those machines forever and eventually everything is going to be computerized and mechanized and, and even now mechanical logging is starting to um, fall out of favor for cut to length operations with harvesters and forwarders. Would you say that your book is, is kind of like a museum preserving the, the heritage of logging?
1: Uh, yes, uh, the Vermont Folklife Center, uh, they call it, uh, the name now is Vermont Folklife. It used to be Vermont Folklife Center. Uh, their uh, mission really is to kind of be a museum or a caretaker or an archive of what's happening in Vermont. And it need not be, you know, 100 years old. It could be talking about, you know the the the- you know the irene hurricane and the flooding uh, capturing whatever is the concern of the day such as recently it's covid uh, so you know i share i've always had that same interest as the folk life people is you know let's tell us stories that that should be told and aren't being. really appreciate and respect and and give them the respect that they deserve I think to learn the machine. A lot depends on your hand-eye coordination. We set up the controls so they were the same as our log loader. Your push and pull and up and down were the same. Your main tune controls were the same. When we bought our first feller buncher in 1996, I worked for a day with a feller buncher mechanic. Just by listening and talking to him, I probably learned more in that day about running machine than I ever had. He didn't cut in the woods, but he knew how to run the buncher and be graceful with it. You just don't slam bang around. You don't need to run it wide open. You don't twist on the saw. We were having a hard time getting enough logs at the sawmill, and a feller buncher can cut what three, four, five men can cut with a chainsaw. In the right hands, the feller buncher is very productive. In the wrong hands, it's very destructive. Some people are just never going to be any good at it. For me, it was second nature. Jason and I, Jason, my brother, and I had been around machines since we were kids. Her father never said, no, you can't run that. He'd say, see what, see what you can do with it. When you're in a feller buncher cab, you don't have to worry as much about getting hurt, but you still have safety issues. You have to look the job over. This one goes here, this one goes there. On good cutting grounds, I can probably put 10 to 15 truckloads on the ground. If I have to limb out, limb out the trees, I can probably do eight a day. I sit in the Timco 2,000 hours a year and nobody runs it but me, don't sit in my seat. Stay the hell out. If something goes wrong, I won't know who pushed what or did what. It probably costs us $200 an hour with oil and gas and maintenance to run it. We can't afford downtime. So, I mean, that's the modern, you have to work, 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 keep the machine busy. Don't break for lunch. Eat in the cab. Uh, And Justin and Jason, like their father, were, you know, workaholics on the run. uh, And that was the only way they felt they could, you know, stay ahead of rising costs or changing demand or, you know, whatever was thrown at them.
0: So in your book, you also document people's relationship with the forest in Vermont and how foresters and policymakers are shaping its management. And I think our listeners are pretty familiar with how well-intentioned members of the general public have a desire to protect the environment and natural resources and are automatically against timber harvesting sometimes. Um, but yet, they're very disconnected from the land.
1: Yes, <laughs> I agree, and I was um, looking for something here. What is it? Um, Palm Jaeger. Okay, I don't know. And certainly, that was a the the question of you know what does it mean to be a good steward of the land. Um, and uh, you know, I asked this to, to everyone I spoke with. You know. You know, what is your responsibility? Uh, and I think, and it may be, uh, you know, I when I asked for people to interview or to follow, I said, I want to talk with thoughtful people uh, who are respected by their colleagues. And I think that's what I, the people I spoke with, you know, reflect. And, you know, there is... Uh, Tom Yeager, a forester for 40 plus years for A. Johnson uh, Company Mill in Bristol, and that's one of the biggest mills in in Vermont. And he is really kind of of foresters, you know, with with a you know working for commercial operations as opposed to a forester who worked. Uh, Austin.
0: What type of forester is
1: he? Well, he is the forester. He was until he retired uh, after 40-something years for A. Johnson. The, that's where Bill Sayer uh, works, he's the co-owner. And he has always said, my job as the forester is to leave the forest better than I found it. And so I asked him, you know, to reflect on how do you do that. And here's, you know, I pulled out a, a short section on, uh, you know, what he, you know, how he felt about what his job was. And I can read this if you'd like now. Great. Okay. <clears throat> and the title of this much longer piece is the Force is like a tapestry. One of my favorite metaphors is the forest is like a tapestry. Any single string in itself is pretty nondescript. But a single string has lots, has a lot of effect, because it crosses a lot of other strings over time. So you have to ask a lot of questions. What is your time frame and level of infrastructure? Do you work a stand completely, or are you better off coming back periodically to maintain infrastructure and lower your maintenance costs while also accessing timber? It all depends on the lot and soil and what is growing there. Once we cut a stand, it's generally 15 to 30 years, depending on the quality of the land, before we go back. The last time the McDonald lot was logged was 1982 when we removed overstory to give light to the next crop. We selected crop trees, gave them room to grow, and got rid of the junk. If you do that, then you have a chance of getting it right. All the things that people understand about plants in their garden flower bed are true in the forest. Trees need space to grow or they get sick and stop growing. What we have now in this lot is a lot of very large, valuable trees. Second, we have a lot of nicely formed poles, trees four to eight feet or four to eight inches in diameter that are our next crop. So we have some really good timber in this stand. And if we open up the overstory again, the crowns of this younger stuff will explode, and these understory trees will take off. It's a long wait, but you have to put it in a time frame that suits the tree, not humans. If you don't have that time frame, you're going to be a one-generation logger. And that's what he means by thinking generationally. And he felt, as a family-run business, they could think generation like that you know ken johnson was the fifth generation and he was indebted to what his father and grandfather did and
0: you know later on at the end of
1: the book you know ken talks about his responsibility uh to the forest you know looking ahead i can read that later but uh if you like but i think what always comes through is all the people that I spent time with said I want to leave it better, and to them that meant cutting, uh, you know, where appropriate. And you know, this is something that Mike Snyder has been very concerned about. And there was a something at the end that I was I thought I could read if you wanted, where he talks about uh, you know seeing the big picture. And, uh, you know, that's his job as commissioner.
0: Uh, yeah, but, uh, he was the commissioner of forests, parks, and recreation um, for Vermont. I think he stepped down now, but um, he was pretty prolific. And, yeah, um, I really liked what he had to say about, um, you know, reconnecting people with the land. So, I, I'd love to hear what he okay. said about that.
1: The, uh, and he, yes, he did step down. I think it was as of January 1st. And I don't know if it was eight or 10 years, but, you know, Frank, he was exhausted. I mean, I said, you know, the,
0: Can you repeat what you said there? We, it's, um, cutting out a bit.
1: Oh, okay. Um, uh, <clears throat> I'll move closer. The, uh, I think when he, he spoke at the end, he said, you know, I really loved the job. But, you know, after 10 years of, you know, just constant, you know, there was never a day off. And he, I think he just got tired and he said, it's, it's time for a new person. Uh, and he, he would certainly stay involved. and uh, But I I think he, he simply said, I'm, I don't want to... Well, I shouldn't even speak for him, uh, but I, everyone was thought he had very big shoes to fill. That he could talk to the environmentalists, he could talk to the loggers. He, he basically listened to everyone, and I think my sense was, and then of course Bill Sayre could, you know, has a much better feel for this kind of thing that. Uh, he was respected by everyone as a good listener and they all knew he had certain constraints. Uh, he had, you know, a limited budget, didn't have the county, for, you know, the, the staff he needed at all times and, uh, you know, he dealt with the legislature and uh, so he would do the best he could and uh, I think people valued his commitment. And so I would hear him frequently because of the a Vermont Vermont forced round table which is uh, part of the book and he would always attend and they'd say you know Mike what's happening in the legislature what's happening here and what's happening there he was always very good at saying you know here's what's happening you know here are the the tensions here are places where I think perhaps we can agree and uh, you know it was just a very realistic uh observer. I don't think he was ever personal in terms of you know I disagree with this person, you know. So he was
0: um he was a great facilitator.
1: Yeah, he was. Yeah, I think I think that's the way to and Jamie Fidel was also a great facilitator. I don't know if he would ever be um uh, you know, somebody to write for you. Uh, but he is, well, if you read the section on him, he really uh, started the roundtable uh, because he said, we're not talking to each other. We're talking past each other. You know, why don't we all get in a room together and see how, you know, where there's common ground. And I think the forest round Roundtable... Um, this might be a story angle, is there is nothing like it in New Hampshire, or I don't think New York. And uh, so Vermont is unique in that way of saying, right, and, you know, Jamie might talk about, you know, are we a model for other places in the sense that we get 30 or 40 people to come together, you know, four times a year, COVID threw a made a mess of that, but uh, to talk over, you know, the, like parcelization was a big, big concern 15 years ago, and they have moved to, uh, you know, like planning boards, and the state has, has argued now that, you know, when you approve a subdivision, you have to look at its impact on habitat, you know, an intact forest and things like that. And it was the Forest Roundtable that got together and said, "Um, this helps all of us. You know, Bill Sayer talks about this as well, saying Vermont is so small that we can't really fight (laughs) because we're going to see each other on a
0: street (laughs) corner. Yeah, right. It's a
1: small world. the small world. I mean, you. I mean, certainly people do make enemies, but you know, it's not as entrenched as much as say out in the west. You know, with the clear cutting and the you know the the big corporations and the, here it's, it's family. You know, and so it's it's harder to, you know, i I I knew your grandfather or you know whatever, and uh, you know I don't want to romanticize the. You know how things are done here, but uh, I think it's probably very, very different from you know New York. Some other kind of thoughts by an old, by people who are getting ready to retire, and you know what they think might happen, you know, you know after they leave. And again, these are the Lathrops. You know, there were uh, there was Jim Lathrop and his younger brother Tom, in Jim stayed on with the sawmill, and Tom went off on his own and had a a flooring mill. And you know they kind of worked together. He would buy logs for me. You know, that uh, would help each other out. But uh, Tom Lathrop, both the Lathrops were very much historians of the family business, and they felt deeply about uh, you know there's a tradition, and uh, and so here here's. Uh, an excerpt from Tom Lathrop. It's all I've ever known. And I'll start off with a, a photo caption that uh, that goes with the... This is uh, uh, a caption that goes along with a section, uh, Tom Lathrop, it's all I've ever known, where he's talking about running a flooring business. And the, it shows a, a log uh, being cut into... Uh, to planks. And, he said, and here's the caption Anyone can run a machine, but can you take the best face off that cant at the right thickness? That separates the men from the boys. You're cutting into something you can't see. You're looking for clues like grain and heart size. Some people never develop the sense that you're not just sawing the outside of the log. You're sawing what you believe is behind it. You're sawing an unknown. I still get fooled, and I've saw millions of bored feet. And then here's the, his thoughts on what comes next. I plan to retire when I'm 65 and sell the business. Some people are very angry and upset. They tell me that nobody else caters to woodworkers like I do. That makes me feel bad, and I hope someone keeps it going. There is a decent living to be made, and I'm willing to show a buyer how to do things for a year or two, troubleshoot and help them out. But you have to love something to master it. It's your baby. It's like your family. If someone is just interested in crunching numbers, they'd better do something else. I'll be right up front with them about that. Being fifth generation means that I hate to let go because I fear when I go, the coffin is going to be closed. There will not be another Lathrop flooring mill in Bristol after mine closes. Unless you really know the lumber business through and through, I'd advise you not to go into the flooring business. Or don't do it to get rich and make money. The learning curve is too expensive. I've really thought about it and have tried to do it well. I love what I do and I'm going to miss it. It's all I've ever known. And uh, there is an epilogue. He could not find a buyer and the bill is closed. Uh, and. Uh, He tried and tried and tried to find somebody who could uh, take it over. And I don't know if this would be of interest. A. Johnson is right next to uh, Tom Lathrop's flooring mill. I mean, you walk ten steps and you're in the other person's lot. But Ken Johnson uh, ends with long-term... Uh, forestry is very satisfying. Long-term forestry is very satisfying. We were expected to work growing up. I started piling wood in the basement when I was seven or eight. I was driving a forklift when I was 15 or 16. I was probably 18 or 19 when I ran the little resaw. I was 18 when I decided I wanted to be part of the family business. It was a path of least resistance, to be honest. I graduated from high school and never applied to college. I went out west for a couple months, came back, and started work. That was September 1974, and I've been here every, ever since, 48 years now. I'm going to retire in the next eight or ten years, and I'd like to think there will be people who want to run it, People here will continue to have jobs. Someone else will own it. My only child isn't interested, and I wouldn't recommend it unless you grew up learning it. If business were better, I'd hire another yard person. But it's a real struggle to find people who are interested. If you grew up on a farm, you have a leg up because the worth ethic and familiarity with machinery are the same. What attracts people to logging, not the money? It's difficult. It's a difficult way to make a living. I'm pretty sure it's the independence. It's working hard and being in the woods. It's working for yourself and working with people you like and respect. You can cut a woodlot three times in your career and see the results of your work if you have that long-term view forestry is very satisfying so i mean there there may be other things that that appeal to you or but these were just ones that i thought you know, might capture how the kind of the, you know the, the passion these people have for what they do
0: I think you painted a really vivid picture of um, the different perspectives in your book, and maybe you could just read one final excerpt from Mike Snyder.
1: Here's something from uh, Mike Snyder, and uh, what I, as I've mentioned, what I've always asked people was, can look into your crystal ball, you know, what did it used to be like? You know, what do you hope it might be like in the future? And, you know, what are the challenges that you see? And, you know, ways that we can approach them. And so with Michael Snyder, I, I asked him at one point to talk about where, the, where things stood. And, uh, and here's an excerpt from some of what he said. We have come a long way in Vermont since I started in the mid-1980s, our, harvesting, sy- sy- excuse me, our har- harvesting systems, techniques, and tools have changed for the better, and we have a better understanding of forest ecology and how forests work. Well, we have even better tools and a more scientific basis today to protect the land, we have way less social license for harvesting. I'm baffled by the disconnect among a large proportion of our population. Not everyone in their understanding of the importance of the forest. They don't like logging. They live in a house made of and filled with wood. They write on paper made out of wood. They heat their homes sometimes with wood or partially with wood. And yet they think logging is bad. They love fall foliage. They love clean water. I don't know where they think that is coming from. We begin at hearing no from so many constituents now when it comes to harvesting. Not in my backyard. Logging must be bad. In part, this is because our demographic is changing. In the past, we were an agrarian society, and Vermonters appreciated and were connected to the land. These attitudes can be changed with outreach and education that reconnects people with the land, but it takes time and a lot of work. And then here's another section, if you want. My appreciation of the forest hasn't really changed since I started 30 years ago, but my understanding of the systems, economic, social, cultural, legal, has changed since I became commissioner in 2010 and had to see the big picture. On the positive side, I'd say we have moved the needle on awareness and appreciation of what the forest does for us. When we make world-class wood products, we make Vermont, Vermont. It's not just okay to cut trees, it's good. Vermont looks the way it does because of the hard work of forest landowners, foresters, loggers, and farmers. We have been lucky that they have been allowed to do it. When I first spoke in front of the legislature seven years ago, their response was, what are you selling? Now I'm hearing, how much of a problem is the high cost of workers' compensation for loggers? How can we help with that? Or tell me more about modern wood heat and how we can support that. Will that help with the loss of markets for low grade wood? I just testified before a Senate committee in support of the right to conduct forestry operations. This establishes a policy, like they have in agriculture, that provides legal protections for lawful forestry operations. This protects loggers from frivolous and nuisance lawsuits while still maintaining reasonable protections for neighbors against harmful operations. This committee discussion went well with support from members. Just two years ago, I was told, we're not doing that. And so he does see change. It's, it's not easy, uh, but I, I think he's an optimist uh, by nature. Yeah, you know, well, I hope. I, I mean, I, I'm more interested in what it means to the you know, the people in the forest products. I mean, I think they deserve recognition and respect and appreciation, and they don't always get that. And, uh, you know, I, and I think that when you read what these people say, you'll say, geez, they really care about the forest.
0: You can find links for more information about Portrait of a Forest, Men and Machine in our show notes. We'll also be selling the book at the Northeastern Forest Products Equipment Expo, also known as the Loggers Expo, in Bangor, Maine, held from May 19th to 20th, 2023. Also, as a listener of this month's podcast, we'd like to offer you a discount for attending the upcoming Loggers Expo in Bangor. To register, Go to our website and find the webpage www.northernlogger.com forward slash loggers hyphen expo hyphen 2023 and click on the registration link. Enter the attendee discount code POD3333, that's P-O-D-3333, to get 50% off the entry fee. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you at the Expo.